It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 85, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Eric McClam and his dad, Robbie, own City Roots in Columbia, South Carolina. With eight acres of vegetables, mushrooms, you-pick berries, flowers, bees, agritourism, vermicomposting, and several high tunnels, City Roots is seven years into its operation and grosses about $650,000 annually and provides a living for Eric and his family on the farm. We dig deeply into their operation and the relationship between Eric and Robbie, including how their different personalities have influenced the growth of the operation and the directions it has gone, as well as how they structure their communications and their relationship. We also explore how City Roots has leveraged marketing partners to extend their reach, how they manage so much diversity in three distinct production parcels, and their experience with no-till vegetables, organic certification, and GAPS audits. City Roots has received numerous awards and recognitions, including the 2012 Green America's People and Planet Award for Best Green Business, the 2010 International Downtown Association Pinnacle Award, the 2010 Columbia Choice Award, the 2010 to 2013 Free Times Best of Columbia, Best New Green Business, and the 2010 Farm City Award, Richland County, and the 2015 Green Business of the Year Award from the Environmental Education Association of South Carolina. After spending a couple hours with them, I know why. I I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it for you. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost space living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Robbie and Eric McClam, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. Uh, we're excited to be here. We enjoy your show and uh, very excited to be a part of it. Thanks for making the time to make this work on a Wednesday mid-morning out there in South Carolina. Uh, and a busy one. Everyone is that way. Uh, Eric just ran away from a tour group. He was taking a group of educators through the, the, the farm and trying to get over here in time for the interview. So we're excited to be here. Thank you so much. So I'd like to start with having you guys tell us about the, the history of City Roots Farm. And, and well, you guys know the drill. So why don't you just dive in and, and tell us about your place? I'm glad to. All right. Um, Well, Chris, in 2009, early in 2009, um, (laughs) I was laying in bed. My wife was getting ready to go teach. Uh, She teaches uh, or taught at the time at a women's college and listened to NPR. And she said, you need to hear this guy who's getting the MacArthur Foundation Award for his uh, urban farm up in Milwaukee. And it was uh, growing power, Will Allen up there. The next thing I knew, I listened to it. And then before I knew it, I had semi-retired a little bit early and then a background as an architect and a builder and doing some real estate development that worked out well. So I was able to kind of slow down early, but I'd always had a passion for farming. And so I listened to Will Allen's interview and then looked him up online. And next thing I knew, I signed up for a commercial ag program in Milwaukee and was flying up there once a month for five months and uh, really became an ebbinger with what they were doing there, particularly in the greenhouses and their microgreens and their processes there. And came back and, to uh, make a long story short, found some property here in Columbia, and I wanted it to be an urban site. I wanted it to be intensively used. Um, and found a little three-and-a-half-acre site within a mile of my home near a little industrial area. And uh, we got started there. But, uh, of course, from those things, uh, it wasn't an easy start. Um, I thought I knew a little bit about zoning and development, being an architect and a builder. 
um, and came to find out it was over near an airport. It was vacant land in an industrial area. And I thought for sure we'd have no problem uh, uh, putting a farm, but I found out we were not allowed by zoning. So we had to go through a rather extensive change in the zoning ordinance. Uh, we pointed out to them that it was okay to, at the current zoning to have an asphalt emulsion plant like our neighbor, but we couldn't have an organic farm. Well, the planning <laughs> department was very uh, understanding and very sympathetic, as well as the mayor. The mayor, you know, was a, a big supporter at the time. And we went through that and had it changed citywide so that uh, urban farms are now allowed pretty much in, in several areas of the city, depending on its fishing zoning. So we got that going. And it started, and uh, Eric finished up uh, school about 2009, and that was when the economy was going to hell, and he had his master's degree in architecture. And I said, well, come help me out here at the farm, and I'll keep And I needed a job. <laughs> yeah, you needed a job, exactly. Yeah. And I said, uh, I'll keep getting doing a little bit of architecture work and keep you involved in that. But um, it kind of morphed into his loving it full-time, and – uh, again, we'll go into more detail. Uh, over the years, I've kind of morphed uh, out of doing the day-to-day -day management and running it, and Eric really is the full-time manager of the farm and taking it from there. So, Eric, you can kind of talk about how we've grown. I mean, of course, I mentioned sure. I think our first full, full year of 2010, we uh, grossed, I think, $56,000. And uh, this past year, I think we were around $640,000, $650,000. So we've grown a lot in a short period of time. It's almost doubled each year. But Eric can tell that story. Sure. Um, you know, like you said, I my background was was architecture as well. I, I joke my education in farming came from second grade garden club. That's about it. Um, hadn't really even stepped foot on an organic farm prior to City Roots, and obviously learned pretty quick through reading numerous books and conferences and touring other farms. But um, you know, I first came back to maybe help build and design the building and get my hands dirty a little bit. But um, I fell in love with it. Even turned out a full time job as an architect was offered a position and turned it down to take over the farm and run it as a business. And really since then, I haven't looked back and, and joked that I retired from architecture at uh, 25. I'm only 30. <laughs> so, it, uh, you know, we've, we've been farming for seven years now. And uh, it is, I, I'm embarrassed to say how little we knew, but how far we've come. Eric, can you tell me a little bit about how you guys went about growing the farm? Sure. Um, we first started um, with me full time, and we had a part time guy, which we eventually let go. That was working out, um, and you know, we've along over the years, we've had some some great employees and great staff that's helped us along. But I think without our community around us, the surrounding neighborhood and city, it, and our, our our customers, we wouldn't have grown the way that we've done. Um, we've had a number of interns and a lot of even volunteers being in an urban setting. We've had a lot of people that have come down and wanted to or how to farm or garden or just want to get their hands dirty. They're underemployed or, or overeducated and need something to do for the summer. And um, we really first started on the, the urban farm sites, um, trying to grow intensive vegetables, but simultaneously trying to grow microgreens. Um, and we realized pretty early on that microgreens were a great niche for us. However, we had to do a lot of education of, to our consumers uh, as to what they were. A couple of chefs knew what they were, but nobody off the street, none of your farmers market people knew what they were. And we kind of said, hey, these things are little superfoods and they're great for you. And they taste amazing. They're beautiful, great aesthetic, great for, you know, the culinary type side for restaurants. And we really kind of built a first greenhouse there and started growing those uh, with the food production and really weren't doing very well either until we got some extra staff to really manage the greenhouse uh, production well. Um, 
and then into the field as well. I got some more support staff. Um, you know, I really enjoyed the field side more than the greenhouse, although I've always recognized the greenhouse really kind of pays the bills. I kind of joke sometimes in the previous years, if we stopped growing in the field, we'd actually make money because um, the microgreens <laughs> kind of carry us there. But um, it really, as we've scaled up, we've got some more appropriate equipment, um, uh, more adequate staff. Um, and really, once I realized that I needed to release and relinquish the reins a lot of times, that we had staff that were very competent that, you know, we have a field manager and he's got support crew. We've got a greenhouse manager and she's got several support staff in the greenhouses. And I hired a sales operations position that, you know, took over a lot of the sales and communications. And you know, since then, we've actually been hired on another person's part time. That's all of our social media communications and farm tours and agritourism also has really um, been kind of a, sometimes a saving grace even to bring in some extra income from venue rentals and, and dinners and events. Having a diversified operation has really helped us grow, but also I think at times spread us too thin and, and happy to kind of discuss those things as well. Yeah, Chris, if I can weigh in, um, I think Eric said it well. I think one of the reasons we've grown is he's young enough and uh, at the time naive enough to try everything. So we've <laughs> we, he, he, my role has been kind of slow down to try and slow down and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. If, if it was up to me, we'd have one greenhouse and we'd be poking along pulling weeds by ourselves. But uh, Eric has been rather fearless, and uh, it's it's been a nice yin and yang between us. We get, we get along very well. The real growth, I think, is a result of Eric. And then what we've done with some of our bigger accounts. You know, it's the Parado principle, 80-20. You know, 80% of our income probably comes from 20% or less of our clients. So uh, it's been a fun road. Well, so you mentioned that you're that you're grossing about six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Are you guys making a living on the farm with that? Uh, yes. I mean, one of our goals from the beginning was to, uh, and I think it's in our little mission statement, was to actually sort of create as many jobs as we could with you know a living wage. And and uh, we we joke part of being sustainable is having a sustainable income. But I have to confess, you know, I, I was fortunate to be in pretty good shape financially when we started this. But after the first year, I got scared. I looked at Eric and uh, I, I said, you know, I think I've got a black hole here. This this cannot continue. This is not sustainable. You know, we were we were hemorrhaging rather deeply, and my nest egg was uh, shrinking, and it was scaring me a lot. And we really buckled down and sort of figured out the things that were more profitable, and we started increasing sales and. You know, started going on there, so stuff. Yeah, the CSA and restaurant sales and making the turns, and we teamed up with a nonprofit down in um, Charleston called Grow Food Carolina that uh, distributes a lot of our produce to the restaurants and stuff down in Charleston. Charleston is just a special, magical city, and they must have they have thousands and thousands of great restaurants, and uh, so they've been our distribution net network, and I think that really kind of pushes up and. And we've kind of taken off from there. We've got accounts with Whole Foods now and working on with U.S. foods. And we're probably the largest microgreen producer in the southeast. And um, we're we're seeing that grow and we're, we're excited about it. To answer your question a little more directly, um, you know, I'm making a salary in which that um, you know, I've got a wife and daughter at home and closing and buying a house on Friday and being able to support a family. And for our staff, we pay the majority of our salary and offered benefits, uh, health benefits as well. Um, we pay much higher than any minimum wage uh, and make sure that we're paying our staff, our field crew um, at an adequate rate um, and our management staff um, 
even more and they get you know paid vacation as well um majority of our staff we retain year-round um probably 80 percent of them are year-round only a couple of them are part-time that uh, you know at this point we've got some I think we've got uh, eight full-time staff, um, four that are eight salaried, four that are pretty much full-time hourly, and three or four part-time um, lower hours. But um, we've got a pretty big crew, and, and you know, 75, 80, 90% of those will retain over the winter as well. But, you know, I, I think we still don't pay them enough. Eric doesn't make enough, Chris, and uh, our other people, they, they do such an incredible job uh, – our goal is to, to increase their salaries as well and, and, and retain them. They, they've, they've bought into it and uh, they deserve more and we're, we're trying to, to scratch away so we can put, pay them all more. Well, one of the things that's, that I think is really interesting about your operation is just how diverse you are. I mean, you guys you guys are marketing through a wide variety of channels and you're also doing not just vegetable production out in the field and microgreens, but you've got like 27 other things that you're doing as well to bring in money. Yeah. So, you know, obviously we've got the vegetable production, which is the primary thing we started. And at this point we cultivate about eight acres altogether. Um, and let me give you the breakdown of acreage and the farm kind of scale first. So you understand all of that. Um, the urban farm site now through a little bit of expansion, it's about, five acres altogether. Um, cultivated acreage at the, what we'll call the city root site is about two acres. Um, and then we've got about 9,000 square feet of greenhouse um, in which we grow microgreens and have an aquaponic system. We've got another greenhouse that we built for actually for events, about 2,000 square feet, which we'll be converting into either flowers or microgreens, and then another 5,000 square feet of high tunnel. Um, and so we've got about Sorry, two acres of, of vegetable production on the farm there, along with some extra perennials and stuff, which is about a quarter acre. Um, then we lease about six acres down the road at a local high school, which you can call Episcopal School, um, where the bulk of our vegetable production happens and a lot more and more cultivating equipment and larger equipment that. Um, and then we've got a family property that, um, that we have that's 10 acres irrigated um, that we've just been cover cropping the last couple of years. It's about an hour and 45 minutes away from the farm. Um, that we're not, we don't have that active at this point. So we do also grow cut flowers um, at City Roots, and we're looking to actually increase that um, and really transfer a lot of the urban farm site into flower production. And we're actively looking for a flower farmer to hire onto our staff. Um, and then we have our microgreens, which um, you know are probably upwards of 60% of our gross sales are through our microgreens. Um, we grow uh, oyster mushrooms, um, and that's something we started a year ago, uh, and partly with the help of a value-added producer grant. Uh, we also grow, we do pick uh, blackberries, grapes, uh, and blueberries on the farm seasonally. Um, we do keep bees, uh, so we do sell some honey, but they're mainly for pollination. We keep about a dozen chickens, uh, egg layers, but um, they're really for um, farm tours. And according to little kids, you're not a farm unless you've got a, a cow, chickens, a pig, or a tractor. So we've got at least a tractor and chickens. So we do a lot of agritourism. So... We do on-farm dinners once a month, um, and then we also do some larger festivals. We do a tomato festival in the summer, three or 4,000 people attend. We do a Mardi Gras festival in the spring. Uh, we do a rosé wine festival, a craft beer festival, bacon oyster roast, and we have eight to 10,000 people attend those annually, which brings in a fair amount of revenue. And then agritourism side, we actually started with uh, two other people, a, another company called Farm to Table Event Company with an event planner and a restaurant tour really take on those on a larger scale, which is even coming on becoming a catering 
uh, side of the business as well. Um, and then education is a big part of the forum. We have three or 4,000 students come through and we do farm tours there as well. And then we do some composting on the farm as well on site. And then we have an aquaponics system in which we grow a couple hundred tilapia. Um, and then we've got worm bins from the composting um, that we utilize as well. I think I've covered everything. I might have missed something, but um, that is the farm production enterprises in a nutshell. And what about your marketing enterprises? I mean, how are you guys pushing that produce out there? I know, Robbie, you you mentioned some of these earlier, but just to kind of put them all in one place. Yeah, I can do oh. that for you. Um, yeah. It's uh, our CSA. Um, we do between 100 and 125 people, um, and we will be increasing that this coming year. But that's about 20% of our, our gross sales to the CSA. And our CSA pickups are on-site at the farm since we're an urban farm. Um, it's pretty efficient for us. We pack them up and um, pick up for once a week on the farm. So we don't have any off-site um, places. We do uh, one farmer's market. It's a Saturday market, 52 weeks out of the year. Um, and it's like a nine-to-one sorry, Saturday farmer's market, which we do pretty well at, about 10%. But we are um, really starting to look at, we really need to be doing more retail um, for some of the field produce and microgreens. Um, and looking at going to two other cities within about an hour of us to, to get a few more markets just have to figure out the logistics, trucks and vehicles and refrigeration. Uh, restaurants make up about 10, only about 10%, but we do about 25, 30 restaurants in our city. And then we uh, move some of our products through a food hub down in Charleston, which is about an hour and 45 minutes from us, called Grove Food Carolina, which they handle marketing sales, liability and distribution for small farmers, which they sell to about 150 restaurants in the Charleston area and some grocery stores. And then a um, good bit of our product goes to uh, some wholesalers, retailers like Whole Foods, um, uh, Grow Food Carolina, the Food Hub, the Fresh Point, which is a subsidiary of Cisco. And um, hopefully by the end of the week, we'll be working with, even with U.S. Foods and just finish up the paperwork with them as well. So we've recognized lately that a you know it's much simpler for us to pack up several thousand dollars uh, worth of microgreens to uh, one large group than it is to do it piecemeal uh, to much smaller, uh, smaller restaurants and customers that walk in. And then we do have some walk-in. We have a you know farm building and on-site sales is probably 2 or 3% um, of what we're doing. But we do a little bit of that as well and hope to grow that as well. Chris, if I could add in, one of the things that I think has helped us a bunch and I want to make a plug for it is um, that we are organically certified. Um, particularly with our wholesale accounts with Whole Food and uh, Grow Food Carolina. That, that's made a big difference. And the other thing I really want to make a plug for is our friends down in Charleston at Grow Food Carolina. They really sort of saved us back a few years back, and they're just wonderful. You know, we tried to break in down there under marketing and drive down and visit uh, restaurants and give them samples, and everybody loved them. But it was just a tedious, tedious project, and they had that whole network there. So we're probably in 75 different restaurants in Charleston at any any one time so uh, it's been it's been fun but the organic certification i think was very important and, and it's helped us a lot it's kind of made us a little bit more distinct and then we have gas certification as well and then carry a bunch of liability insurance and things like that that have made that a reality with the organic certification is that covering all your production enterprises the the mushrooms the tilapia or is that just focused on on the vegetables and the microgreens not quite all of them. Um, at this point, um, the mushrooms we'll probably look at pretty soon. We're waiting for the group we get our spawn from to be certified. Although he helps um, our certifier in South Carolina, we use his Clemson Department of Plant Industry. Um, and the person we get our spawn from is helping them figure out how that might work for their certification. 
Um, so we're waiting on the people we get our spawning from to then certify. Um, and then our flowers aren't yet, but they probably will be. The aquaponics system with NFP rules is kind of a difficult situation that we haven't even bothered it. The aquaponics system is a really neat system. However, it is a teeny, teeny part of what we do. And it's just kind of passive at this point with a couple hundred tilapia. And we sell a good bit of watercress and nasturtium blossoms, but we don't market those as organic because we don't have them certified. But, you know, all of our microgreens, um, all our industrial production is certified organic. Tell me a little bit about how you, you went about the GAPS certification process. Um, if I can, we did, let me do the first part there because it's nice. We, we actually were approached by our local um, uh, USDA representatives and, and sort of said, I want to help you get there. And it's important. Uh, I had seen stuff and been to concerts and conferences and sort of came away initially with the idea that it wasn't necessary. But um, Eric sort of pushed and said, yeah, we should do this. And, and the, the individual that approached us was through a farm to school grant through the USDA. And she's worked for, I think, for the Department of Ag and then um, helped basically write our uh, food safety plan with us, um, went through how the certification was going to work and the inspections. Um, so we had somebody that held our hand through all of it. Um, I, you know, was very much uh, pushed for the, the necessity of, of one, just it's a, the best practice. And, you know, we really, really want to look at the farm. How do we do things in the best possible way um, from a management perspective? And, and just food safety is important. So, but it also, we knew that from a business side, to be able to get into some of these larger wholesalers, we had to have it. It was a necessity. So um, we just kind of made sure that our protocols were in place and that our employees were trained and that the food safety plan was was enacted. How challenging was that for you? Um, um, let, me, let me jump in. I did the sort of flow charts that were required as part of it. It's kind of fun. As an architect, I like drawing them and did them all freehand, and we walked through all those sort of things. And then Eric did the legwork with them on, on site as they walked through and identified things that might be missing. And, you know, but uh, it, it, it wasn't nearly as challenging as I thought it was going to be. Eric, you may feel differently because you did the actual walkthroughs and have kept them current. But uh, what do you think? Well, it's, it's just the, the tedium of the record keeping. But record keeping, I know Chris, you hark on it all the time. Uh, is vastly important to, to any farm as well. So, you know, if it didn't get recorded, it didn't happen in, in the inspector's mind. And so just like organic certification, we got to keep all our records for that too. So, and what I found also is that, you know, I've got to delegate so much on the farm now. And these are some of the food safety stuff I've delegated to one of my other staff that to make sure they're, they're checking all of the boxes. So um, we make sure that we have somebody that's in charge of it. Um, and that's one of the things that we've recognized with the farm and management is that, you know, somebody's in charge of each area of the farm. We've got somebody that manages the, the mushrooms, somebody that manages the microgreens, somebody that manages office sales and operations, uh, somebody that manages our social media, somebody that manages the gap stuff. And, um, you know, I can be more and more hands off to look at bigger picture stuff. Um, I joke, I'm less and less a farmer and more and more of the, uh, accountant and other things and, and not the fielder on the tractor as much as I like, but I think that's with any business growth. But I miss the days where no one called me or bothered me and I could just keep playing out in the field by myself and have dirt under my nails. Hopefully as you grow, you get to a point where you kind of turn the corner on that where things are taking care of themselves and then you can kind of get back out and have more fun. I think uh, we're getting close there, Chris. I, a little anecdotal thing I've learned, uh, Eric just came back from almost a three-week vacation, well-deserved, went up to the Northeast. I have to admit, I was very anxious about running the farm alone without him because they'd gotten so big and so many things going on. 
But I, I joke with Eric, that farm can keep going without either of us. Our staff asked me hardly any questions. They all knew what they needed to do. They have the authority to make decisions and go forward. And, you know, so I was just running around the whole time there signing checks and, uh, you know, doing my little cleanup projects and working on special things. So, but it was a real, a real eye opener and a real pleasant surprise to see how well it runs and, and how well our staff has bought in and, and feel ownership of the farm. So um, it's something I wanted to, to brag about for them. Why do you think that is? I know a lot of times when you talk to farmers, they'll say, well, you know, what's what you say, you know, if you ask folks, what's the most challenging aspect of your farm? Organic vegetable farmers will say two things. They'll say weeds and then they'll say employees. If I underestimated anything, it was the trouble that comes from weeds. The employees, I think, I don't know, part of my career, and I'm 62, was, you know, five years with the, the state government. I was head of a state agency, and we spent a lot of time about human resources and how to handle people and how to treat them and what makes people meaningful. And, and you know, throughout my career, I've, I've paid attention to that. And I think, I hope, and I hope when our employees listen to this podcast, they, they know I mean it. Um, we respect them very much, and, and we try to give them the latitude that's necessary to make choices and make decisions. And, you know, we we, we try not to micromanage. Um, there's a lot of things that are being done the way I wouldn't do them personally. But, um, you know, at some point you have to give people that authority and, and respect it And because they're certainly not getting overpaid. They're not getting paid enough to do the hard things they do every day, as, as you can well imagine. But, um they're proud of what they do, and, and we're we're appreciative of what they do, and, and it seems to make a difference. And, you know, not all of our employees have worked out, but we're now at a point where we just got such a great crew. I, I hate to see the thought of any of them leave, and yet, and yet they do. And, and we have a succession that works well. Our, our sales managers help us, you know, triple our income and ran the office and did everything. Bobby, he's, he's on his way to Portland, Oregon now and moved out there with his partner, and we were thinking, how are we going to replace that? And we sort of replaced him with two people, you know, but the new people are great as well. I don't know. We just feel very lucky right now with, with who we have on staff. Having put so much emphasis on delegating those responsibilities downwards, how do you manage staff transitions? Yeah, I, I think it depends on who it is and how it is. And probably the best example is um, with Bobby, who just left. Um, he let us know five, six weeks in advance. Um, that he was planning to do it. And we always knew we couldn't keep him forever. He was only 26, 27 there, and, um, but full of energy and a great person. So it gave us time to think about it. We had him help us uh, write up a job description of what all he did and his duties and how he did it and when he did it. And then we started looking around for folks to fill in. We've, we've transferred some of the responsibilities to Frances, who had been with us for a while, and she took part of it. And then we hired a new staff person who happened to be the sister of our field manager and uh, who we think is the best find we've ever had. Uh, I'm talking about the field manager, and I think his sister may be the second best find. She's working out great as well. So, you know, it's it, it's with a little bit of planning, a little bit of luck. And I think maybe the best thing, and Eric, you help me here, we've had a pretty extensive internship and volunteer program, and probably 80 or 90% of the people that were with us were first volunteers or, or interns. So we kind of got to do a little shakeout, and we kind of found people that we thought were so good we couldn't let them go and found full-time sort of things for them. So it's, it's been a good testing period. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, if somebody is an intern or worked with us that um, we think we really want to retain, I mean, I'll literally take a pay cut to keep them 
um, on board. We find a way to financially make that happen. Good people are hard to find. And, and what we do, we want to incentivize them to stay around. We've had people that didn't work out particularly well, and those are the harder things. You know, the HR side of things are, are not the things that I enjoy when there's our, you know, conflicts. They always do arise. But, you know, communication, I think, has been, we've found to be the most critical part of the management structure of the farm that we got to make sure everybody's talking. Um, and, you know, I recognize one of my, my things is that I'm probably not meeting with them enough. And yep. one of the things that I've realized over the years is that, you know, I got plenty of shortcomings and things that aren't my strengths. And if I can be humble enough to recognize them and hire somebody to do what I can't do because I can't do it and they've got a better strength than it, I'll, I'll do that. I'd, I'd much rather have somebody that's passionate about it handle it than it's something that I'm going to drag my feet on. Um, and to, to know that I have to delegate, and it's been hard to do over the years. And I think you know, as the farms matured, it's um, something that we've recognized and said, hey, we need to let this part go or another. And another example we can do is that, you know, one of our um, our new kind of marketing communications individuals, also getting our uh, educational components, we hired on part time. And it's been a, an amazing blessing. She's a background as a master's from uh the slow food school in Italy, um, and she's a food writer, and she's on come on board to do a lot of that side of what we're doing and, and focused on. You know, we never really got into marketing, communication, social media stuff because it was a bottom of the totem pole. But now, wait a second, that's what the public see. This is what we need to need to really focus on a little more, and we've retained her as well. Um, I'm not going to lie, our our you know, we're pretty tight right now. Payroll is eating us alive, but we have an amazing team. And we're going to make that work. I think it's always a little bit of a stepwise thing, right? You know, you, you need the people in place to grow the business and mm-hmm. you have to grow the business to have the people in place. Yeah, and there's exactly. always good. And it's a balancing act. So you're always going to be on one side or the other. You're either going to be understaffed and overworked, or you're going to be you're going to be a little bit overstaffed and and trying to make up the money side of things. You know, yeah. it's balance being a verb and not a noun. Yeah, and we, we, Chris, we've done both, and it's uh, always a balance. Chris, you, you hit it right on the head. This last season, uh, coming into this year, I think we made the commitment to try to find and hire the staff we need to make it work. With that five acres that Eric mentioned out in Heathwood, we were converting what was a field of kudzu and debris, and it's taken us a couple of years to get it up and running. And you know, last year, uh, I don't even know if it was profitable. We had so much weed pressure. Yeah, it was. And we've done, we've done a bunch of things there to improve that, and we've got a lot of staff on it, and uh, it's been fun to see that turn around. So you mentioned the importance of having this, the interns and the volunteers as kind of feedstock for your employees, some folks that are that are there who aren't full-time with you, but are are kind of where you can identify the people that you want to elevate into into full time status on the farm. Can you tell us a little bit about how your internship and volunteer programs work? Sure. Um, I guess I'll begin by the volunteer side. Um, we've got a lot of universities around us. We have students that sometimes need class credit or some curriculum type stuff, and will come and, and want to work on the farm a little bit, or, or writing a paper uh, for class, and want to volunteer some. And we get both high school and college students uh, on the volunteer side or some retirees in the neighborhood that just want something to do. Um, so we recognize a couple of people through that program. Actually, though, one of our, our longest employees at this point, about five years now, our greenhouse manager came on as a volunteer years ago and moved down from um, from the Ohio um, and volunteered a couple of times as a master gardener and worked up at Green Acres up there. Um, and we were like, wow, she's incredible and um, ended up offering her a job. And we started doing internships kind of early on and they were 
kind of loose and not as structured as we would like. They were unpaid. They kind of helped out where they could kind of thing. And as we kind of progressed, personally, I, I, I pushed very hard for um, having a paid internship. I, I felt that it, if that wasn't the case, that, you know, they need to be compensated. Um, I know a lot of farmers have discussions about what they should or shouldn't be. Um, you know, obviously, they're learning a skill set from us. Um, that's kind of what they are receiving in return. However, I feel if you're doing hard physical labor in the deep south and this hot, you need to be paid. Those interns uh, either come from, most of them are college students. Uh, some have moved from other states over and, and stay with us for longer periods of time when we recognize that they're a good fit. And it's a good way for us to kind of vet those that are really uh, understand what farm work means and, and that pace. And we look for competent, fast, hardworking people um, that um, that get it, um, that we we don't have to look over their shoulder to make sure they're working fast enough. Or you know, it's not the person that asks every two minutes, what's next, boss? What's next, boss? Hey, what do we do next? They can look and, and are smart enough to say, okay, I think I understand what's next. And if they don't understand They'll stop and ask me before they break something. But, um, you know, it's something that, you know, uh, it does add to our payroll, but I think it adds to the importance of what we're doing, both on educating young new farmers, uh, but also for us to potentially hire some of them on. And most of which, a couple of them, we always keep a couple on for the season. And if I can add something, two things. One, uh, Chris, you may have heard it before. It's one of my favorite things. There's two things on a farm that can do a lot of damage in a short period of time. One is a tractor and the other is a volunteer. <laughs> so, that's right so we keep that in mind and, and you know back in the beginning when i was more active i would tell all our staff when they would you know complain that one of the volunteers had done something wrong or you know had made up a made a mess I, I reminded them that that was their responsibility that they must not have explained it well enough or worked with them close enough that teaching was an important part of it the, the second thing i want to add is that you know we try to tell our interns uh from the very beginning to to ask questions and uh much like we we're happy sharing with you and your listeners what we've done we we like doing the same thing with our interns we'll share them the financial side we make them work the market we rotate them from the greenhouse to the field to the mushroom so we we do try to return the good fortune that we have having them on site with a, a full rounded experience. And we're still not doing that as well as we should. There's always room for improvement, but that's certainly our goal. And, you know, we've had many of our interns tell us it's been the best job they've ever had. And, you know, like Eric said, many of them we keep and uh, find, find work for them on a year round basis. So we, we cross train all of our interns across the farm in each department. Um, but we also cross train across train all of our, um, our staff as well. So, I want to be able to interchange our greenhouse or field staff at any time or retail or, you know, the, I've been on some nonprofits and you say, okay, what happens if the executive director gets hit by a bus? What, what do we do? Um, and want to make sure that there's a plan in place for how this place <laughs> operates. Um, so, you know, what if I get hit by a file cabinet one day? Um, how, right. do we, how do we, how do we keep going? You know, so, um, you know, our planting plans are, are in place and work through with our, our field manager and, you know, there's a lot of flexibility there, and that's something that we're kind of working on together. He's been with us about a year, but yeah, um, internships have been have really helped us build the farm and, and what we're capable of doing. Now it's it's my job to uh, make sure that they have the adequate equipment um, and, and things that they need. And I've kind of when I got back from my long kind of little sabbatical looking at some other farms last couple of weeks and realize that we need to invest more in um, some of our processing equipment and, and other things that will help them out, both just because of ergonomics, but efficiency. Um, and we're really 
pushing to make the appropriate purchases to make this place as efficient as we can. I want to ask you about profitability because you mentioned early on that one of the things that you did was to focus on your profitable activities to figure out, you know, where you were making money and to try to grow in those areas. You know, and you've mentioned like the the aquaponics is something that is sort of a little kind of a little sideshow right now. And Eric, you just said we didn't make any money on that on that off-site place because of the weed pressure. How are you guys tracking profitability for different enterprises or different locations? Well, we're not doing a good enough job. Um, that's something gonna, that we need, need was, to work on. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> Go ahead, Eric. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we, we do have QuickBooks. We do record all of our harvest and sales and all that kind of stuff. And we do try to delve into that. Um, you know, we can take a general look at that, that five, six acres that we're farming off-site. Um, you know, two things happened last year with that site. One, we got 23 inches of rain in three days um, and had a flood conditions out there and lost the majority of their production during the fall in October. Um, the second thing is that we didn't have enough staff to manage it properly and weeds kind of took over. We didn't plant all of the fields there either, but, um, you know, the productivity of there diminished because we didn't have the appropriate equipment. But I could look at what our payroll was for our field staff look at our, our um, vegetable crop sales and say, okay, these don't match. You know, we, we definitely lost money up there. Um, so, you know, I don't have a hard number, but I can look generally um, and get some rough estimates and say, no, this wasn't working. But, you know, to go into some of the en- enterprises uh, about, you know, how we look at them in profitability, you know, we've done calculations for microgreens on how much we're making per flat, per variety, per time of year. And we've really dialed that in really well and know those numbers pretty well. The field's a little bit harder because every year, you know, we first started about six years ago with an acre, then an acre and a half, then two acres for a couple of years. And last year we added two to three acres at the other site. And now we've got full six acres on that field. So every year, you know, that number of, of cultivated areas really increased. Um, the mushrooms we that right now is not a profitable enterprise. It's kind of underwritten by value added grant currently, but um, we're finally dialing that in and production's up with you know, some of the other smaller things like I know chickens and bees and things like that. We we know we aren't doing much with that. That's you know kind of like with bees. We actually have an office, a beekeeper that's retired and he manages our bees for us and he takes the honey and but we just want the pollination out of it and we kind of relinquish that to somebody else instead of one of our staff because. Either I was going to have to become a beekeeper professionally or let somebody else do it on a volunteer basis. So, you know, some of the things we can kind of look at. And we also have looked at agritourism, and we've actually added a lot more infrastructure on the farm for that. But that's kind of the low-hanging fruit. We ran out our, our farm as a venue for weddings, uh, parties, and events. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say even fraternity and sorority events. Um, but, um, that kind of cash flow pretty easily. The infrastructure is already there. It's, you know, one of my staff members hourly paid for a couple hours. We really net a lot more off of running the farm. We drove, you know, one evening with a uh, wedding. There's a hell of a lot of radishes, um, that we have to grow. So, you know, that, that part of the farm has been helping us, uh, expand more rapidly than if we just had a farm. Um, and, you know, we, we net 30 or $40,000 each year off of um, many rentals and agritourism and school tours. And that doesn't really take much of our time or resources to do so if we already have the infrastructure in place. And I think that's really a place where you guys are taking advantage of your location being right there in the city. One of the things that uh, we joke about, uh, Eric and I thought we'd be down there pulling weeds by ourselves, but we have uh, 
had a wonderful reception here in the city of Columbia. There, there, you know, we're, we're not a food hub by any means, but, um, you know, I, we've won all kinds of awards, national, local, regular for best green business. And we're in the paper regularly. And if any of the newscasts wants to do anything related to farms, they come interview Eric or I and, you know, people, and we have these bigger festivals and people know what's going on. So, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been great. We're, we're been very, very well received and, uh, we're, we're a little bit humbled by it. To tell you two of the kind of surprises Eric joked, he never thought he'd be, uh, uh, better known and, and more popular as a, as a farmer than an architect. So uh, <laughs> it's been a fun run. I think, you know, definitely farmers right now, at least are hipper than architects. I think I so. Think, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do not regret one bit not going into the architectural field. Um, I mean that very honestly. I'm, I'm very fortunate to call myself a farmer. One of the things, Chris, you asked, and we both started to answer that last question about profitability pretty quickly, is uh, we, we don't track it well enough. But um, two things. One, I had wanted to uh, calculate how we did last year at Heathwood, and Eric wouldn't let me. He said, we know we lost money. Don't make me see how much we lost. But this he promised that this year was a new year and I would be able to track it. So some of the times when I'm down in Mexico, I pull out all the records and I start grinding them. And, and I've had a great time doing that. We love spreadsheets as well. And I did that with the microgreens and shared it with our folks there. And, you know, we, we, we make some choices. We grow some stuff that are kind of lost lead items that take forever and they're not very profitable on the microgreen side. And yet, you know, sunflowers are twice as profitable as some of the others. But we, we still grow them. At least we grow them knowing that some of these things don't make money. Well, if I can back into a little bit of history of, of, you know, how the profitability has kind of flowed from 2009 to now, you know, the first year, roughly, um, we were very, very, very much in the red. We kind of turned the corner by doing a CSA and get some cash flow up front. And each year since then, we've, because we put so much back into infrastructure, um, we've um, pretty much broke even or had a slight profit most years, some years, you know, maybe a slight loss. And, when we've had those, they've been a nice tax break for us. But um, over the past couple of years, we've really kind of started to turn the corner on the profitability. But we do take a, have a small operating loan that we've used for equipment and some other stuff. But otherwise, every year, you know, we continue to build infrastructure and, and from our, our capital that we've built from um, the farm revenues. How are you guys structured as a business? Are you guys a corporation, a partnership, or are you still running this as a sole proprietorship? From the first few years, first six or seven years, uh, we, from the very beginning, it's been an LLC. And then when Eric came on board, he was brought in as a member. And then right now we're an S-Corp. And uh, Eric has 50%, and my wife and I have 25% each of it. Okay. And so that allows you there, you're paying yourself a salary when you say that you're actually, you guys are taking a loss. Does that, that, that reflects that salary coming in? Is that true? It does. Um, Eric is a salary. I don't take a salary. I do get health insurance. <laughs> so I work for my health insurance. And my wife is in the same boat. She uh, she was very active when we first started help us get rolling, but she's not as active on the farm as, as she was before. You know, I'd say that's it's not true on every farm that I've talked to, but on a lot of farms that I've talked to, that role of having somebody who who is not drawing a salary and who can really focus on the things that are important, but not urgent has been an important piece of a, of a farm's development, especially in those early years. Um, I'll let Eric talk a little bit about it, but um, I think that's a great observation, Chris. I, th I think you're right. I, I've morphed into what I call myself the special projects guy and I get to come in there and, you know, I don't try and run the day-to-day -day operations, but I see things that I think I'd like to see 
looking better or functioning better or building. And, and I have an architecture and a building background. So, you know, I do those things. I love equipment. I love my roads to be straight. I like the end roads to be clean. You know, and I, we have a lot of summer help. Uh, Suburban League kids are, were my favorite, you know, these high schoolers that have never had a job before. And I said, all right, guys, come on, let's have some fun. You guys have to keep up with a 62-year-old. Come on, let's go. And and we have a good time. We get it done, and we slept like dogs. I, I, this, this summer, I tell you, as I mentioned earlier, July has been brutal, but I'll, I'll lose five pounds every day when I come in from just sweating, have a few beers, and try and gain it, gain it back in the evening. <laughs> I think we had 17 days over 100 so far this uh, this summer, um, which is pretty crazy. But um, to answer that kind of back with the um, you know the overall big picture stuff, for you know we, I think we stagnated for a little while a couple of years ago because I didn't have the basically the the staffing resources to to take on the things that were hindering me, and I realize now that I have to stop myself. I, I I can't be the person out there hand pulling weeds or, or even harvesting some of the stuff sometimes and realize that, I, you know, I hope that I'm a more valuable asset, you know, tracking down larger wholesale customers or making sure certifications are there and this bigger picture kind of things and let, you know, the equally as important um, parts of the farm like harvesting and cultivation and all that that are occurring. But my role is just different. I, I you know, I don't try and look at our managers and our staff as I'm their boss, I'm their peer and colleague. I'm just working on something different, um, you know, that's equally as important as what they're doing. And I try and, you know, reiterate that with them is that, you know, you pulling weeds is just as important as me doing what I'm doing. Um, but for the bigger picture longevity of the farm, I need to be keeping this farm from hitting the guardrails wrecking. And that's what my job is, is to be, you know, engineer of this crazy train. You mentioned that you guys are selling at the farmer's market year-round. Is your CSA also year-round? Um, it is not. Uh, we are going to try and shift more towards that. So we do have a couple of high tunnels. Uh, we're fortunate with our CSA. Um, I'll just talk about that for a little bit. Um, that you know, We always have microgreens in our CSA. We typically always have mushrooms in there as well, uh, field crops, um, and, and cut flowers and stuff. So we're actually, every product in our CSA box um, is from our farm. So we don't, we don't bring any outside uh, products in, but we don't quite do year round. We're going to shift a little bit for a little bit to it, but we typically do it eight week spring and eight week summer and eight week fall. And then we usually throw in like a kind of a four week in between. Um, we'll do like a January, February one, that's more like 20, 25 people. And we'll do that again in late summer, early fall. So, and we'll break it up a little bit. So we, we don't try and do a full year-round or 24-week in a row one. Um, occasionally, you know, the, the spring and summer typically kind of run into each other. But July is so hot here that we typically take a break for the last couple weeks of July, first week of August, because everything's kind of waning from the summer and or fall stuff can't go in yet. But we're moving more towards a year-round CSA and kind of breaking those blocks up into four- or eight-week um, sessions to make it a little bit more affordable for customers. Um, but I do want to say we, we don't grow everything. And that's one of the things we realize on the profitability side. You know, I don't grow potatoes. I don't grow onions. So occasionally I'll grow garlic. Uh, we don't grow melons. We don't grow a lot of the crops that take a lot of space. And that was mainly when we were just at the urban farm site. But now we've got a larger field that, that applies as well. Um, it's much more profitable. You kind of joke, kale is king. We'll, we can grow a lot more kale more profitably than we could um, a row of melons. Or, and I've never grown sweet corn and never will um, for that same fact. But we've got several precision Jang cedars. We have a, a, a Jang 12, 12, a Jang 12 row cedar 
and several of the individual ones. And we'll actually intercrop with in between our um, pre-row bed um, transplanted stuff too. So we'll we really push as much productivity as we can out of the fields, and we really want to make sure that those are things that are profitable. We try and push that very hard, um, and that we can sell well uh, or cut and come again type type options like kale. How cold does it get there in the wintertime there in Columbia? We are in zone eight. Um, we're kind of a hot eight, um, but, you know, not that cold. We'll see several freeze events throughout the year, snow maybe once a year. But we, we use plenty of row cover out in the fields. We get frost a couple times a week in the wintertime. Um, I don't know, Dad, what do you think about that? That's about right. Um, relative to Wisconsin, uh, it's a balmy winter. <laughs> well, relative to Wisconsin, everything's a balmy winter. Right, right. But uh, no, we can grow. We can grow a lot. You know, it, it becomes a matter of the daylight hours from, you know, but we only lose about, I think it's mid-December to mid-January when we have less than 10 hours of daylight. So uh, it, it's a it's a workable winter. We can we can basically grow over winter. Uh, we can pretty much grow year round. And that's why we're going to probably shift more towards some year round CSA and, and you know, we never stop growing. Uh, literally, our microgreens are seven days a week. I, I'll come in and water microgreens on Christmas, uh, unfortunately, to my wife. But, um, you know, and in the field as well, we've got stuff out in the field year-round. Um, obviously, more of your cold, hardy brassicas um, and root crops and stuff. But um, we can still grow leafy greens over the wintertime for the most part, especially in our high tunnels, which obviously get a jump start on some of the spring uh crops in there and summer stuff too but eric if i could add i think that's one of the things we're looking at adding though some more high tunnels um to get a little bit more production in the wintertime in particular we've uh kind of looked around and, and most of our greenhouses and high tunnels are um are used it's sort of recycled as part of our sustainability we market ourselves as a sustainable farm we tell the story our first greenhouse was uh something we bought from a guy that used to be a uh, tobacco seeding uh, greenhouse. And so we tell him we've gone from growing uh, poison to, uh, you know, the most healthy food you can probably grow in microgreens. So uh, it's been fun. But we found going secondhand has uh, worked very well for the greenhouses and the high tunnels. And we like building them. Um, we, we enjoy the building side of stuff. And uh, I'm very fortunate that, um, that my dad is uh, rather skilled in, in construction, um, you know, a lot of times I don't get to, to build them in their entirety, but usually he'll manage uh, the, you know, construction of one of these things. And one of the things we found also that we'll go to our local um, uh, metal fence company around the around the mile or two from us and buy a lot of the metal material, the purlins, a lot of the pipes, um, and all the nuts, bolts, and fixings for about a third the price of your greenhouse company. We'll order the trusses, um, the plastic, and the blowers and all that from our greenhouse companies, but it is significantly cheaper for us to go get the pipe down the road. With that, Robbie and Eric, we're going to take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with with more from City Roots in Columbia, South Carolina. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes for certified organic transplant production. And while it's hard to start thinking now about next year's potting soil in the middle of the current season, you don't want to miss participating in Vermont Compost Company's fall pre-buy program. When you order Vermont Compost potting soil for next year's growing season, you can save significantly on the finest potting soil that I personally have ever used. There are many great options for significant savings. Vermont Compost Company organizes shared truckload weeks when they organize and group orders by state or region. When you place your order to ship on one of these shared truckloads, they offer discounts on the purchase of your potting soil. Plus, they consolidate the orders so growers also save on shipping fees. 
Now, if you want to get the best possible deal on Vermont compost potting soil, order a full truckload. If you don't need a full truckload yourself, get together with your farming friends and neighbors and order a full truckload together. This option offers the best possible price per sling bag or pallet and the best possible shipping rate. It's also the best option for growers who are a great distance away from Vermont. Growers who pre-buy full truckloads often end up paying a price for their sling bags that is lower than what growers pay for a sling bag picked up in Vermont. The fall pre-buy program runs September 21st to December 21st. For more information, visit the website, vermontcompost.com. Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it's a truly superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. All right, and we're back with Robbie and, and Eric McClam from City Roots in Columbia, South Carolina. You guys mentioned that you got a value-added producer grant to do the mushroom production. And I think you got a value-added grant before that to work on your microgreens production. Can you tell me a little bit about how that process worked, how you were able to use that to leverage your business? Glad to, Chris. I did most of the paperwork on it, and I think that's one of the benefits of having a little bit more time. Eric was able to focus on the farm and stay on it. And um, it was a little intimidating at first, but I actually had a state job and been head of a state agency. So the paperwork doesn't scare me too much. It's just a matter of clearing your head and clearing out space and sort of methodically going through it all. And then you circle back around and you find you forgot something and this has to match up with that. And on the first one, I even had an outside person who uh, works with one of the governmental bodies and wanted to help us review it. And she added uh, a lot of editing and, and helped go through it. But um it was worthwhile. It was great. It, um, I forget the numbers on it, and maybe Eric, you can add at the end what that was for the microgreen micro grant, but it was for the first year of that, and we were already producing microgreens, so we didn't have to produce a business plan. It was something we already could show um, what our sales were, and then we did projections on what we would like them to be with the, with the grant. And uh, that was a couple of years ago, and we far exceeded our, our hope for growth on that, the, the microgreen production really ramped up when we got Whole Foods on and Grow Food and, and started shipping throughout the Southeast. Well, if I could interject, um, the way that kind of functioned, uh, there was, I think, for, for around fifty or $60,000 over a period of a year, um, it was for uh, operating capital. Um, it was a matching grant. So we had to have $60,000 in matching funds. Um, so it was a 50-50. It was a 50% from the USDA and 50% from us. Um, so we had to prove that we had $60,000 in our checking account. So we had to go through uh, one of our local banks and you know, make sure we had funds in the operating loan to exceed that if we had to. And so there were some things we had to do on the financial side to make that a reality. Um, but at that point, we've been in operation for years and had plenty of um, equity to, to be able to do so. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you added that. That was kind of critical there. And fortunately, we were able to do it. So when we started to think about applying for another one, we were at the tail end of the microgreen uh, BAPG 
grant, and we decided to apply for mushrooms. We were already producing it, and we'd had mixed results. It's a little tricky, um, but we worked a lot with one of your previous guests, Trad, uh, who's been on your program. Trad's been a big help. We've had him down, and he helped us get started. So we went ahead and decided to apply for a two-year grant, and uh, at this point, we're very glad we did. We're about two-thirds of the way through the first year, and but for that grant, we would really be losing some money. So it, it's a, helped us through the personnel side of it in terms of funding. Uh, we think we've turned the corner, and we're really now starting to produce it, and we're, we're optimistic that um, we'll be able to make that a profitable component of our one of our enterprises. But uh, but for that um, value-added producer grant, we probably would have given up on the mushroom production. And, we would have shut it down a while back. Yeah. yeah. So what kinds of things has the value-added producer grant funded for you? Primarily um, staff. It'll, it'll allow you to get an extra employee or two in there. We're able to allocate some of my time and Eric's time as owners as in-kind matching. So we'll do a lot of the focus on the uh, marketing side of it. It uh, allows us to include in the budget some marketing as well. We've done that. What else is sales marketing, uh, delivery, um, and advertising for it? Um, it doesn't pay for any infrastructure, none of that. Um, it's really mainly for the staffing and, and marketing of, of it. And again, we have to match those funds. I think it's important if someone is applying for the grant to realize what the intent of it is from the government. And I think that intent is to create more jobs and to allow a business to thrive. And so we, we focus on that. And the truth is it's really worked, particularly in the microgreen production. Uh, I don't know that we would have been so bold to try and expand like we did and, and have the funds to hire extra people, but it really allowed us to turn the corner. Kind of like you mentioned, Chris, before, that you know, you have to get more staff to grow more, but then when you get more staff, you have less profit because you got more staff and, and that sort of vicious cycle. It's, it's a great vehicle to do it. And I found, the staff uh, with the U.S. Department of Agriculture that worked with us incredibly helpful. Uh, we found that in, in all the areas. Uh, we, we feel very fortunate here, and I imagine it's the same in other states. Have you guys used other grants as you've grown your operation? We have. Um, one of the first ones that we pursued was through our uh, NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Service, through their EQIP program. Um, so with that, most people are familiar with the High Tunnel program. We um, put installed one of those uh, micro-irrigation uh, composting sheds. Uh, cover cropping. Um, uh, we did a conservation activity plan through that as well, which a local nonprofit helped us with um, for nutrient management and a bunch of things. So really, because we're certified organic, um, there are priority points for that EQIP program. Um, and there aren't. A, we're kind of farming in a vacuum in Columbia. There really are only one or two other smaller vegetable farms around us. And then we've got one that's you know does 2,000 acres of collards down the road. But um, so you know. For the most part, we've, when we've applied for one of the equipment grants, we've received one because there's funding available. Um, and then the other one that we did several years back has been a, um, a whole other story in of itself is that we were awarded a National Conservation Innovation Grant to convert our farm into no-till industrial production. It hadn't really transitioned as well as we would have liked, um, but we partnered with a professor from the University of um, South Carolina, Buzz Clute, who's a soil scientist, and I was really kind of... Um, inspired by Ray Archuleta at a, at a talk a long while back about no-till and the importance of that. And so we kind of plotted along, uh, plant multi-species cover crops and using a roller crimper and planting through those residues. And um, and that helped offset some of the costs for the equipment um, to do so. And we've had mixed results with, with no-till. And 
and it have not converted the entire farm into that. And it's kind of a, a hybrid now at this point of um, cultivated space uh, and some no-till and then back and forth. And now we're currently working with our land-grant university, uh, Clemson, um, to do some further um, share grant research um, with them. And we're just one of their um, partner farms to do those experiments. Um, uh, and then we've also worked with another group doing some uh, variety trials as well, working with Cornell on that. But um, because we're in the city, we're a great uh, demonstration workshop facility. Um, so we have a lot of on-farm uh, workshops that we will partner with a university or, or a conservation district or USDA to, to give workshops on, on different um, aspects of our farm. Um, and that's been really great for us. And, and you know, I, I've always learn much more from other farmers and visiting other farms. So we always want to have our, our doors open to others. Um, you know, people can walk through our greenhouses and see everything and, and we have a very open door policy. So, and that includes all those workshops too. It is one of the coolest things I think about the organic farming community is, is how open everybody is. And certainly, I mean, the, the, the 80 some odd guests that we've had on the farmer to farmer podcast are, are, really indicative of that. Everybody's out here talking about their business, giving away their trade secrets yeah. on the radio. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so their neighbors come in and, you know, succeed where they're succeeding. And I just think it's, it's such a, it's just such a cool and rewarding part of, of being a part of this community. Uh, we couldn't agree more, Chris. It's uh, it's a little bit humbling. Um, we've, uh, we've been helped along the way by so many people, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's humbling. That's the best thing I think of. And it's, and it's, uh, it's fun too. Uh, it's fun to give back. I think that's one of the things I've realized getting older that, you know, some of the greatest pleasures in life are when you're, you're helping other people, you know, succeed as well. Okay. So with that little sentimental nod then, so tell me a little bit more about your no-till production. Cause I think that's something that, that gets a lot of buzz and a lot of interest, but I've, I'm a no-till skeptic, especially when it comes to doing the the roll-down cover crops in in vegetables. It's been a little bit of a roller coaster. I mean, we started, and again, back to our naivety, um, we were two years into farming, maybe. We tried to start doing no-till, and I didn't know how to farm in the first place. So we had mixed results. And I guess I'll start by saying what equipment we use. When we first got started, uh, we had a pretty big tractor for a little urban farm. We had 65 horsepower, New Holland with a front end loader and um, a tiller and box blade and a bunch of stuff like that. And we were tilling as much as we could because that was only one of the few ways we could keep the weeds at bay and then realize what that was doing to our soil structure. And then we pursued the um, uh, no-till grants. We paid for two-thirds of the equipment uh, cost. So we bought a uh, six-foot-wide roller crimper uh, with a quick release so we could actually put it on the front end of the tractor so we could roll down the front. And then I um, custom-designed a um, residue slicer, a planter up in Pennsylvania that had a large cutting culture in the front and then double disc opener to open a furrow and then purchased Jang Cedars to uh, go in simultaneously with us. It was a we can roll in the front and then do five rows simultaneously. It sounded amazing. Like this might work great. And we could roll down this crop residue. We kill it in place. And keep a even soil temperature and break down at organic matter. The weed suppressant, you know, these seeds are going to pop straight up through and then we'll just harvest and be done. Um, what we didn't anticipate, and I, and I, you know, and it comes back to our management at the farm is that 
you know, if there was nut size the previous year, it, it came right through that mulch. And if you open up a furrow and it, you're exposing that soil, weeds are going to germinate. So, you know, in the sake of, of rolling down a cover crop of sun hemp, buckwheat, and some Alice clover, um, got a great kill on it, seeded um, carrots, but we take forever to germinate and the weeds bought them. Um, or we roll too early and you've got a couple species and one of them pops back up. And then, you know, what you put in there now is getting covered. We've seen a good bit of success, though, when we were overwintering rye and vetch or rye and clover and transplanting directly tomatoes or eggplants. But even with those, we're realizing we have the mulch, additionally mulch with them. The only ones that really kind of work real well, just rolling and transplanting in, we're finding our, our cucurbits, especially like orange summer squashes. Um, so we haven't quite gotten the mix and timing right for a summer cover to be rolled down for a fall direct seed crop. And the issue also with planting that overwintered cover crop is you kind of negate your spring crop. So we haven't really found something we can roll down early in February or early March to then plant a, um, a spring cash crop into. So there's a lot of timing and management that we haven't quite gotten down yet and are working with Clinton a little bit on that. But what we are finding is that when we do roll and transplant through with specific varieties, it, it works pretty well. Um, but again, we're still trying to figure that. We've now with the larger acreage um, purchased um, three mechanical transplanters of the carousel type that have been cut through that residue. What we're really kind of finding is we just have to roll it and then plant through. But if you roll it and wait too long, and go through that residue slicer, it pulls up the whole crop residue with it and bunches up. And then the precision seeders, the gauge wheel gets caught by sun hemp, and then you're not dropping any seeds. So we're still tinkering with it. Um, so it's not a true no-till, um, even with those scenarios. You know, we also have, you know, do stale beds and flame weeding and, and other stuff too. But um, it's been challenging, but when we have selected the appropriate cover crop, rolled it at the right time and transplanted through, um, with the right crop, it's worked really well, and I've really liked it. Um, but when it goes wrong, it goes wrong bad. Um, <laughs> so it's not it's not something that, that we should have done at the stage of farming experience that we had. But it's definitely something that we're pursuing. And each year we're growing, we're doing more no-till. Um, you know, at this point, if we have a cover crop and don't feel like we can can roll it down and plant through it, we'll lose a bush hog. Which there's a couple pieces of equipment that are vital that we don't have. You know, what we're doing is um, we're spin spreading seed and then lightly tilling that in and getting the cover crop in place because we don't have a no-till drill. Um, and uh, so our next step, um, we've now gone to at a larger acreage. We've got a really neat piece of equipment. After having 23 inches of rain and flooding, we realized we need to go to raised beds. We bought, um, and I will say it wrong because my Italian is terrible, but uh, by Maschio or Maschio, I don't know how you say it in Italian, but... Uh, from them, a uh, piece of equipment called a Tarzan, which is a raised bed shaper power harrow piece of equipment. So it's a dual um, power harrow bed shaper, which gives us a 56-inch bed top, about 10-inch raised bed, on which we can plant our, our three-row transplanter on, which are 20 inches on center, and can plant onto it. But right now, we can't really put in a cover crop particularly well on a raised bed like that without having to reincorporate it with that power harrow. Or, or something else, or just disking it down and, and planting it flat again. Um, so we'll, we're going to try and look at finding a uh, three-point hitch-mounted uh, drill, maybe six feet on center, to be able to to do that. So 
we're missing a pretty vital piece of equipment in the equation to do no so. Um, we may even pick up a, a um, flail mower at some point to knock some stuff down if we have to, or to, to plant through. Or anyway, so there's some big pieces of equipment we need to purchase to make that happen. Um, and while we're on the equipment talk, you know what we're using out there with the um, transplanter and that power hero. We've got a 75 horsepower four-wheel drive John Deere. Um, but what we're finding with that new piece of equipment with the Tarzan is that we've got large 16.9 rear tires. Is that we're eating up six or seven inches of our raised bed top because we've got fat tires on the back. So if you know anybody that has a you know 85 to 105 horsepower high clearance uh, vegetable crop tractor with 9.5 rear and front tires on 48 inch rubbers, we'd love to buy it because um, that's the next thing we're doing. We've, we've got to get that piece of equipment to make our our operation really hum along a little bit better. So we're recognizing as we go that some of these pieces of equipment aren't quite there yet that we really need. And I'm happy to talk more about the other pieces that we have to. Well, tell me a little bit, I mean, talking about tractors, how you're managing these really three different plots of land with your equipment. I mean, it sounds like you're pretty spread out in terms of your field operations. We are, and oh. that's been one of the frustrating things about growth. I don't know, Dad, do you want to talk about that first, or do you want me to? Um, well, maybe we need to paint the picture a little bit. The, the one field at City Roots is smaller, more intimate. Um, the Heathwood property at five acres is only three miles from there. And for, for a good while, we were actually driving the one tractor back and forth from there. So that was rather awkward. But it take about 30 minutes on a tractor and 10 or 15 minutes on a, uh, in a car. Um, in our third location, the old family farm in Lake City, where we have about 10 to 16 acres that uh, we've mainly kept under cover crop because that one really just is too far to, to get to and work with. So we have that in our future plans to do something there. So it is uh, the, the tractor work. I think Eric's done a great job of looking at and looking forward and trying to find the right equipment. We've, we kind of fumbled around a few times. What he didn't tell you is the two other tractors we have on the farm that don't work. <laughs> we can I tell that story? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can tell that one. Go ahead. <laughs> but um, so we, on the City Roots farm, we've got a larger 65 horsepower with a bucket, which we do all our composting with and turn our soil for microgreens and all that. And that now stays at the city root sites. We were driving that back and forth, which um, was one of the reasons that other farm wasn't profitable. We never had the right piece of equipment at the right time. Um, and it just never happened. Um, so then we realized we needed a bigger tractor. We went with a 75 horsepower John Deere. And then we also bought a um, old formal 140 cultivating tractor and actually winded it out to six feet on center. And But it was an older tractor and it kept breaking down and I call it the effing formal because right now it's sitting in six feet of weeds and I've got, it's got a crack in the engine block that I didn't realize that I'm waiting for my tractor mechanic to get to and he's been, I've been waiting on it for six months. And then because I was so unhappy with that, in the meantime, I bought a um, Case 265 offset diesel with some more horsepower and I bought it at auction the first time online, online auction. And I thought I got a good deal on it. It had some issues with the rocker arms, the, the uh, lift arms in the back. I thought my mechanic can fit, fix, but I didn't realize they only built so many of them to build them in Japan. You can't get parts. So I spent several thousand dollars on uh, a lawn ornament that sits on the farm. So we've got two great tractors and two that don't really work right now. So we'll probably either sell both or try and fix one of those cultivating tractors and have those dialed in as a cultivating tractor. But uh, what we've kind of had to bite the bullet and realize is that we've got two farms and we need two pieces of We had to duplicate the farm, essentially. And that was one of the big things that 
we had to spend tens and tens of thousands of dollars to really outfit the six-acre farm Peachwood with the right equipment. So now out there, we've got a larger horsepower tractor to do our, our um, primary tillage. We've got a disc harrow. We've got a Williams tool system, which I love, with a Mater Mac on it for side dressing. We've got uh, a six-burner uh, flame weir that we, my dad and I built, um, a field cultivator, a three-row transplanter, um, a bunch of Jang cedars, a box blade, and um, and yeah, maybe a couple other little things out there. But and then a couple of cultivating tractors that don't work. So we really had to pay up and um, and get the right stuff. And we're still working on that lineup. I think vegetable farming is so much all about timing. Managing those multiple locations just becomes such a challenge, both in terms of the eyes-on management as well as actually getting the work done out in the field. Yeah, and, and what you what you realize too is like, okay, well, we now have to figure out how to plant both farms simultaneously. We basically only transplant out at the Heathwood farm because we have a mechanical transplanter and do a lot of the direct seeding, leafy greens, and more things that we need to focus a little more on at the city root site. But think about how do you transfer all this harvest? You know, we had to get a refrigerated trailer. And thankfully, the Food Hub Grow Food Carolina loaned theirs to us um, to be able to, one, make the because we contracted with them to grow a lot of greens and, and field stuff for them. That we were able to, to lease their um, larger refrigerated trailer from them. So we take that back and forth with our diesel F-250 every day, pretty much, or several times a week to harvest. Um, then run it back to city roots to wash, pack, and process. So, you know, I really wish I had one big farm. I Having two locations is is very challenging and very trying. Um, and that's why we're going to move the city roots farm more to just microgreens than just flowers. Have the other one just as vegetables so that, you know, we can split the operation and, and my guy hasn't have, having to run back and forth um, for my field manager. So. You know, how, how do we make these things work synergistically is, is a little tough. And it's a lot of, you know, I joke, I see they're all I'm doing is heavy materials handling and logistics now. I think even on a small acreage like you guys are running between the two operations, you know, still a relatively small business, it is all about moving stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what farming is. It's it's the process of moving things. With, with that coming, you're exactly right, Chris. One of the things that... Uh, I think I'd encourage for your listeners is, is partnerships with other people. And, and one of the things you have to move, and Erica just mentioned yesterday, uh, I got to get on the phone. We, we're getting too many eggplant. What are we going to do with these? What are we going to do with the mushrooms now that we're doing it? And we have these relationships with some of our wholesalers and uh, the grow food down in Charleston that we can actually contact and then say, you know, help me move this this product, and um, and most all the time they'll respond. We can do that with our restaurant chefs as well with things. It's uh, it's about relationships, and 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 I, I don't think I can emphasize that enough. You know, none of us are doing this in a vacuum. You know, we need other people to do it, and we've had so much help along the way. It's it's important that each farmer cultivate those relationships with with their partners. It's something that John Peterson at Angelic Organics said to me a couple of years ago. They he said to me that when you use a middleman to get your work done, like you guys are talking about this food hub in, down in Charleston, you're essentially paying that person to do a job for you. Mm-hmm. You're hiring work done, you know, so that's why you take a lower price to sell to the food hub is because you can make one call and say, wow, we got to flush mushrooms. We got too many eggplants. Help us unload those. That means that you don't have to hire somebody on staff to call around to 75 different restaurants 
and sell a couple of pounds of eggplants and a couple of pounds of mushrooms to each one of them. They're going to do that for you. Exactly. 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 And the beauty of like take grow food, they take a 20% commission. Prices in Charleston are 20% higher. And it's, it's a, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a win-win. Um, and, um, you know, there's, it is really great. And those partnerships extend all the way to the agritourism. That's why we formed a farmer table event company to, to do all the farm events and, you know, the venue bookings, we outsource that to somebody else because I can't handle it. And those are all those little things that, um, you know, have been great that, you know, benefit other people and also helps pay another person a salary or hire another person that, um, again, it's another job for somebody. One of the things that I found really interesting about your your farm when I first heard about it is the fact that you guys are are really a father-son partnership. And you mentioned early on in the interview here that that Robbie, you started the farm and very quickly brought Eric on board. I guess I'd like to dig in a little bit in into how you guys have your relationship structured. And I think maybe a good place to start, Robbie, would be for you to give us an a little bit of history about your involvement with the farm, because I know that that's, that's changed since the beginning. Okay. Um, and glad to. Well, the, the interesting part is Eric is, uh, is a triplet. So um, he has uh, a brother and sister the same age, same mother and same dad, of which I play an integral part, and a younger brother as well. So at one time, Chris, we had four kids under two. So farming is uh, all about logistics. I think raising kids was as well. So we're kind of used to that. But our structure for Eric and I now is it's it's evolved and it's evolved in a very comfortable and and really I'm I'm happy to say without conflict sort of way. Um, I provided most of the financing to get it started, and then sort of drew a line in the sand and said, okay, now this farm needs to be sustainable and we've got to work it. And uh, Eric has responded very well and been sensitive to the price things and the profitable areas that we talked about. But he really has the freedom to make decisions uh, with or without me. And uh, because I'm out of the country about half the year, the different times off and on, he's gotten used to that responsibility. But I think, and I'll let Eric respond when I get done, you know, when he feels like he needs to talk to me. But we talk regularly. While I'm uh, down in Mexico, we'll talk two or three times a week, and emails are going, and I'm working on things for the farm. So we stay in touch that way. I think it's a very mutually respective sort of thing. I, I, I joked earlier, I, I kind of either put the brakes on things or try to slow them down and get them thinking through it. Eric is a high-energy person. Um, he, you know, can barely finish uh thinking of an idea before he wants to jump on the tractor and go do it. And I'm the one that if it were still me, I'd still be planning the second greenhouse, you know? Um, so I, I'm the slower, more methodical. I like things kind of worked out a little more. So it's a nice, again, the yin and the yang. It's, it's a great balance. I'm proud of what he's done over there. And, and I try to defer most of the credit to where it is today to, to his ambition and his energy and his uh, insights. They, they've been right on target. It's been a fun ride. Eric, is that true? I, I think so. I think he, he, he spoke very well of that. Um, you know, I think it all begins with the perspective communication. And I'm very fortunate. To, um, we've got a, a very tight-knit family unit. And um, it starts from, I guess, an early age there. But I'm fortunate I can work a 12-hour day with my dad and then go get a beer and, and you know, not slug it. For, you know, we get to joke back and forth and, and have a good time at it. And um very, very fortunate that is the case. And, you know, I think, um, you know, from an early stage is very respectful for my desire to grow the business and, and allow me a lot of uh, 
leeway to do so. And I think if that hadn't been the case, there might have been some frustrations uh, uh, over time, but there, there never really were. Um, you know, very early on when I first came on board with the farm, uh, obviously I have to be very thankful for the opportunity that my dad gave me. It's not very often that, um, you know, infrastructure and capital gets plopped down and say, hey, do you want to run this thing? And was given some leeway to do so. And I think because of that leeway and ability to, to grow it, um, you know, uh, our working relationship has been great. Um, but early on, I struggled a lot with whether or not I wanted to be a farmer, whether I go back to architecture. And you know, that was a hard transition. And he was very helpful in mentoring me on, on what to where to go with that. And I, I distinctly remember um, one time he got back from Mexico and said, man, I had a great time. The stress was awesome. I said, well, I didn't. I've been stressed out and anxious this whole time to get all this stuff done. And he kind of laughed and said, well, I guess it looks like um, somewhere in the last year or two, this, um, you know, I transferred all the stress and anxiety of running the business on to you. It's your responsibility now. And, um, you know, you take the reins. Um, and then, you know, at some point we, you know, we discussed for a long time about how that, you know, that transition to ownership might happen. And we, We'll see about it because I didn't know whether I'd stick around initially and was always paid a salary. But then we kind of said, well, okay, we'll spill some sweat equity into this. And eventually it was um, written into the operating agreement as a minority holder of the business. And then later on to you know, being a half ownership there and was very gracious to, to even do so. I'm um, very lucky that that actually happened. But, um, you know, uh, I don't know. I just it, It's been nice to be able to make decisions. But they're tempered by that of, uh, you know, a father, a colleague, and, you know, hopefully no longer as much of a boss. We I hopefully on a business level, we can be peers. And um, I think there's been a lot of respect on decision-making and we go back and forth and, you know, no, neither of us has a, a majority say in that. And we just have to rationally talk through what our next steps are. You've mentioned communication as being something that's really important. A couple of times you talked about it, its importance in working with your employees. Uh, you've talked about it between the two of you. Communication is is an easy word to say, mm-hmm. but how does that actually play out? Like, <laughs> I mean, what what kind of structures do you have that make sure that that communication stays open? Because it's pretty easy to let that door swing shut on its own. Chris, you're good at this. You you're in the right career. These interviews, that's that's the right question, and and it's not an easy one to answer because it is, like you said, an easy word that people throw around. And I think we use the word a lot because we know it's important, and yet we also know we're not doing as good a job as we need to. Uh, we we need to have more regular meetings with our key staff. We need to include them in stuff. I think it's nice when Eric and I are both on the farm because when he starts talking about this new commercial kitchen and processing, I said, "Have you talked to Beth?" We need to get best input on this. This is important, you know, and I think we need to keep remembering that we need to involve everyone that's going to be affected by our, our decisions. As far as our personal communication, um, that's a more natural sort of thing. I think uh, Eric has a latitude to involve me when he feels like he needs to. When I'm not there, I know that's been my choice, and so I give up in my own mind any kind of rights to be involved on those day-to-day basis and, you know, at first, it was a little hard to do, but I'm I'm quite comfortable with that now, and, and it doesn't bother me one iota. You know, things he does things differently than I do, and and I think that's something one has to accept when someone else is is running those things. But uh, it's a moving target. We have to keep working on it. I, there are a lot of areas, uh, particularly on interstaff communications, that we don't do. One of the interesting things we did a while back that I think though has helped with communication across the farm is. Uh, 
we kind of outlawed earbuds. People can't go around with uh, music plugged into their head and doing everything else. Uh, Eric contacted me in Mexico and said one of the staff was actually best suggested that we do that because it was just frustrating. And I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's really helped uh, people tune into what they're doing better. They're more focused on their their task. And every task is important on a farm. It's a, it's a complicated process. And we get more inner communication with folks as, as we're doing it. We, we're usually working groups on things. And I just think it, it builds a lot more cohesion and teamwork when, when you're communicating regularly. One other thing that we do that we've been doing since day one is we provide lunch for our entire staff, volunteers, and interns every day. Um, we've got oh, yeah. coffee and refreshments, uh, cold water. All those resources are there. Um, you know, yes, it's still a cost to us, but, you know, one, everybody every day sits down for lunch together and, and gets to talk about greenhouse talks to the mushrooms, talks to the, uh, to the field, to, whatever. I mean, more often than not, lately I've gone home to see my one-year-old daughter at home, but, you know, we're we're all sitting down as a big farm family every day for a meal and, and get to discuss what's going on. And, and, you know, I think that has also helped with the cohesiveness of the farm. I, I think that can't be overstated. That really is an important, but subtle, subtle, but a very important part. So the communication is, I think, one really important aspect. The other thing that I think must come up between the two of you is is accountability. I mean, Eric, you're you're accountable for producing certain results. And, you know, especially because you're the guy on the ground making the decisions on a day-to-day basis. How do you guys define what outcomes Eric's expected to create and then whether or not he's creating those? Uh, it's a good question, Chris. Um, and, and I don't have an easy answer. I think... Um, we we look at them, and, and sort of my role is when when we're talking about new ventures or where we're heading is to temper that and say how is that going to work? When is that going to work? You know, we've we've had uh, joked about some of the failures. You know, Eric one time gave me a spreadsheet and told me how if we had sixty chickens we could pay back and do this, and then a little bit <laughs> six eight months later I said that didn't work so well, did it? And he acknowledges no, we don't need that many chickens. You know, so. We, uh, I, I let him fail sometimes. I, you know, I, and and I, the decisions are his that way. But he he's quick to learn, and I think that's part of it. We're we're not afraid to try things. We're not afraid afraid to fail. We try to think through what's the worst case scenario if we try this and it doesn't work, and we understand what that downside might be, and and then if we think it's worth it, we we try it. So. You know, uh, we're a little cautious on buying equipment and capital sort of things because those are those are pricey and they can get you in trouble quickly. But um, I don't know. We have a way of working it through that has been fairly friction free and a pleasure, really. We're so proud of where we're at and we've done it and remain good friends and uh, have a great deal of confidence in each other. Eric, when when something goes wrong on the farm, I mean, when you you make a bad decision about the chickens or when when there's a crop failure because something didn't go right while your dad's away in Mexico, how do you handle that? Internally, I I, I put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed, and I'm a very competitive person by nature, and you know, I always fear disappointing people and myself. So, you know, I don't like failure, but I also welcome the opportunity to challenge myself to try something new. Um, and you know, that's tempered a lot of times with my dad and, and, you know, we try and minimize those failures, but 
Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had back crops, carrots, or spinach, or beets, and it's like, what am I doing wrong? Uh, grit my teeth and try and sink in and say, okay, how did it go wrong? Why did it go wrong? What happened? <laughs> and that's one of the things that we need to really focus on. And the problem, I would say a little bit, is that we've grown so fast in so many different directions so quickly that we don't have particularly good metrics yet how to evaluate how good or bad something was sometimes. So, you know, we try and rectify the problems. Um, um, if I can add, Chris, I'd say the one thing that has probably been the hardest for any farmer to learn is the uh, managing uh, employees and how to handle that. And, uh, and if I've helped Eric in any particular area, it's sort of learning to face those early on. I think employee problems or morale problems are things that can be kind of insidious if you don't address them early on. And and we do that by talking to the individuals where there might be a problem uh, alone and separately and tell them right up what's going on. And on occasions, we found we've had people that were just taking away from the morale of the, the group and, and had to let them go. And those are very hard things for Eric to, to take. Uh, but I was able to sort of coach him into a little bit of what to expect and be prepared and not change your mind. Stay focused on the issue, not the individual. And, you know, we, we'll try and end this relationship with this person on a, on a positive note and try and help them go somewhere else. But uh, that's that's always a tricky part. And I think it's a most farmers probably hadn't had a lot of employee experience. And it's a, it's a slow learning curve. But Eric's picked up on it very well and, and listens well. And, and I don't have to beat him up on the other stuff. He's, he's his own biggest critic on stuff. And he knows when things haven't worked out. And so I, so I can't pile on on this. But uh, we're working on it all. Do you guys have a, a regular schedule for communicating? No. Would you agree? <laughs> no, I would. You know, between you and I, like my father's son, it's a lot of times when problems arise or opportunities arise, we'll, we'll call each other or email. And I mean, I was up. I lately can't sleep too often because I got too much going on. But it'll, I'll email him at ten or eleven o'clock at night, or you know, text him, or or when he's in Mexico, I'll Facetime him or Skype him. But um. You know, we, we talk when, when issues arise and we may go a week or two without talking or, or longer even, um, you know, it wasn't always the case, but, you know, with the, my, my confidence has increased in the forum and I don't need to have every little question answered, but, um, with our staff, we need to have more regular meetings and they're kind of a little bit more sporadic. I'll go check on each department periodically, but we need to have some more management level meetings more, more often, but that's something that we need to fix. All right, so with that, we're going to turn to the lightning round here at the end of the show. Eric, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Um, that's always a tough one to answer. I would probably go with either the Williams tool system with a Matermac fertilizer uh, distributor on that. Um, if not that, it's you know the Tarzan Power Hair Bed Shaper. Um, but the uh, transplanter was transformative for us too, so um, that's mine. Robbie, what's the best advice you've ever gotten about farming? <laughs> well, it wasn't the best, but the first advice I got was from a farmer friend says, do you know what you're doing? <laughs> and, I, and my honest answer was not at all, Andy, or I wouldn't be doing it. Eric, what's your favorite crop to grow? I knew you didn't have asked me that question. Profitability-wise, it's definitely going to be the microgreens in the fields. Um, you know, the lowly radish and hot turnips turnip sometimes are, are a great thing to grow because you know what? I can't screw it up usually. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then for, for whoever wants to take it, what's next at city roots farm? 
the vision is always cloudy. I wish I had a crystal ball, but um, the direction I think we're heading towards is uh, expanding our microgreen production. Uh, and to do so, we're going to probably build a 4,500, 5,000 square foot um, greenhouse this coming fall. Um, we've got a, a couple other big wholesale accounts that uh, we just got on board. Um, they can actually take that production. Um, and that's the big direction that the microgreens are going in. With fuel production, you were looking to buy a couple more pieces of equipment like a no-till drill and um, and a um, larger high-clearance high tractor to really kind of dial our, our fuel production and really make that, that thing. And uh, we're going to pick up a greens washing system for both fuel greens and microgreens. Um, and then the, the next big, big thing is that we're, um, we're going to build a rather pricey um, but I think necessary uh, facility on the farm, which is going to be primarily – a more refrigeration and a larger air conditioned space for microgreen processing, washing, packing, and um, and kind of distribution kind of area. Um, that will also have a commercial kitchen within it. We do so many uh, venue rentals and on-farm dinners and events. Um, we found the necessity to have a kitchen for that side of the farm, but also um, we're going to be looking into doing value-added products like your typical jams and pickles and and uh, things like that, but we want to have a kitchen to be able to, to add value to those, you know, thousands of pounds of tomatoes or cucumbers or squash that hit us uh, in the middle of summer that we can't quite figure out what to do with. So, um, so yeah, I think that's that's where we're going. Still building up the Chris, uh, mushroom production via that grant. So a lot of stuff, I guess. Chris, if I could add into that, I think what the, my advice been, has been to Eric and remains as, as we think about going in the future is for him to to look hard at the things that he's enjoying doing the most and uh, continue to pursue those or expand those and to look at the things that are causing the most aggravation and try to eliminate those. It sounds like a simple sort of process and it's an oversimplification, but I think we oftentimes forget to think that way. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping as we go into the future, he keeps that in the back of his mind as, as we make choices on what we're going to do. And if you guys could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer selves one thing, what would it be? I would say get the appropriate equipment when you need it. Fight the bullet, take out a load, but get what you need to make the whole operation work productively and efficiently. Otherwise, you're wasting money and time, and it's frustrating. I wish I'd gotten a tractor a long time ago for the other farm, and I wish I had the knowledge to know there was a high clearance out there. I think I heard it on a podcast from, from you that it actually even existed, so thank you. <laughs> My advice, Chris, would be to make them, and this is a plug for you, <laughs> it is intentional, is to make them listen to all 80 episodes of your program before they start <laughs> anything. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> Eric said, go find the right equipment. Well, how the hell do you know what the right equipment is? You know, that's easier said than done, and you got to listen to other people and see what they did and, and explore those sort of things. So that's the cautious me, you know, but a great resource really has been your programs, and, and I enjoy riding in the car now because I've got one running every time. It's just <laughs> getting through it, and I, and I listen to some of them twice. Like I said, it's been, it's been fun. Thank you so much, Robbie. Thanks so much for being on the show today, you guys. This has been really great. It's been our pleasure. We really have enjoyed it, Chris, and good luck, and we'll be continuing to listen. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work, you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 85 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for McClam. That's M-C-C-L-A-M. 
Don't forget, you can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. Your support makes a big difference to us, whether you provide ongoing support or make a one-time donation or make your Amazon.com purchases through our affiliate link at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash Amazon. It all helps us keep the tractor running. Reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of our business, so if you enjoy the show, please bounce on over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. You can sign up for my email list at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I love to get your guest suggestions. This episode is a direct result of one of those suggestions, so please keep them coming at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.